most likely evolution gave us this blind spot because it thought it was in our personal interest to be blind. Uh, when we're just naively assuming uh, the best about ourselves, uh, that lets us more easily convince others of that and more naturally sort of get along with other people. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I have got two guests on the show today. Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen are co-authors of a new book called Elephant in the Brain. They're exploring some of the hidden truths of why we think what we think but don't always acknowledge. It is a really fun intersection of economics, psychology, and just good old-fashioned truth-telling. They both are fantastic writers. Robin has been on once before as a guest, which we've linked in the show notes if you want to check that out. But Kevin Simler is long been writing at his blog, Melting Asphalt, which I cannot recommend strongly enough. This book is also quite a fun read, if a bit challenging at times. I hope that you will enjoy the conversation with Kevin Simler and Robin Hanson. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So gentlemen, welcome to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Welcome back, Robin, and welcome for the first time, Kevin. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about this book because I was, I was trying to think of the specific way in which to praise it. And the truth is that it made me a bit uncomfortable. And I think that you... It just given having read the book, I think that is something that you will appreciate uh, because you are poking at your term for it is the elephant in the brain, uh, but th this kind of underbelly or these unacknowledged truths that are present in society in the way human beings interact. So that's really the most obvious place for us to start and just set up what it is you guys are exploring with your book, Elephant in the Brain. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we tried to come at this material in the most gentle way possible. Um, and so the elephant is our, our, our metaphor for that. Um, the elephant in the room, uh, obviously being what people are uncomfortable talking about, whereas the elephant in the brain is what we're uncomfortable thinking about. So the fact that it made you uncomfortable doesn't particularly surprise me. Uh, that said, I, I do think it is, you know, when you talk about it in the right way, it is a perfectly safe set of things to talk about. This is just uh, human selfishness and the ways that um, that our selfishness systematically distorts our thinking. So ultimately, this is a book about how to think more clearly. Uh, but to do that, we kind of have to push through this uncomfortable acknowledgement of uh, some of our own inadequacies. I guess you could put it that way. Yeah, I'd like to say that the, the book is making a big, bold claim that you might be surprised at and you first hear it. But upon reading the book, you'll agree with us. But one of the predictions of our big, bold claim is that you don't want to think about it and you'd rather forget about it and look at something else. Yeah, one of the first times I, I got in touch with this idea of how selfish we all are is I had a good friend growing up and very active religiously, doing a lot of uh, charitable giving and volunteering. And he actually, in a discussion, said there's no such thing as a selfless act. And I, I would have never expected this from him, given how much it seemed like he was doing for others. But he said, every action that I'm doing makes me feel good. I'm not, I'm not suffering in any real way, shape or form. It's something that I derive benefit from, I, I feel good about, and it's a lot more selfish than many people would acknowledge. Now, I think most people are comfortable with acknowledging that in the abstract. <laughs> 
if you just talk abstractly about how selfish people are, people will say, well, sometimes they're unselfish, but they're selfish an awful lot. An awful lot of other psychology books out there give basically the same large theme that people are selfish, they're self-deceived about what they're doing, they don't know their motives very well, their motives are often not as pleasant as they think. Uh, What distinguishes our book is that we then go from there to social institutions. We try to show you just in how many different areas uh, you're wrong about your motives. And to really impress with you the the scope of this, we, we don't have any other approach but then to go through many specific things and show you area by area just how wrong you could be. A couple examples of that actually, I actually want to run through with you guys. The one that's very, very relevant for this podcast is on the topic of conversation. Um, and you cite William Shakespeare, all the world's a stage in every kind of social encounter of conversation there is. Uh, acting going on, there is a subtext to these interactions. So uh, can you take us into the weeds a little bit and talk about some of the selfish drivers behind what many of us would perceive to be uh, standard or rudimentary conversation? So, uh, you know, human language is this beautiful, wonderful thing that is our species, a great ancestral gift to ourselves. And we want to think of it in the most positive light. And, and it's done so much for us. And so there's no way that um, we're, we're trying to cut down on you know, what it is that we do together uh, with language. But there's a question about where it ultimately comes from. Like, What is the, the drive that got our species uh, to start talking amongst ourselves? And the, the simple, obvious answer is we just want to share information. And when we share information, we can all learn from each other, learn from each other's mistakes, learn from our elders in the past and, and what may have happened there. But when you really dig into that, the, that explanation kind of falls apart um, using evolutionary reasoning because sharing info so freely is costly. Um, so in, in, first, uh, you, if you have some information that other people don't have, it seems like it would behoove you to monopolize that information. Beyond that, it it seems free to share the information, but to acquire it in the first place requires you to go and, and spend time learning things or do a lot of trial and error or go exploring through the wilderness to, to find where the pond is over the hill. Um, and when you just come and bring that back and share it so freely, it seems like you're kind of giving away things that would otherwise be valuable to you. So, so that when you really look into the costs of talking, you have to wonder, what are the benefits? And uh, we, we draw on two thinkers here, uh, Jeffrey Miller and Jean-Louis Dessau. And uh, what both of these thinkers uh, have argued is that uh, on the payment side of the conversational equation, uh, when we share information, we are advertising ourselves as the kind of people who have this information to offer, not just here in this conversation as a quid pro quo, but as a general quality that we can bring to any situation that we might find ourselves in. And so if if I say some interesting, uh, surprising, impressive things, then uh, other people will notice that and think, oh, Kevin would be a good person to have around. And so that's sort of the subtext. Uh, it is about information sharing. And it's not that any of us are thinking about this consciously as we go about having conversation. It just feels good to share information. But when you peel away some of the layers here, uh, there is a, a benefit to this. And that is um, it's a, a signal to others that we have interesting things to say. I'd just like to uh, notice the structure of our argument, just to make it clear. In conversation, as in elsewhere, 
there's a usual story or a high-minded story that we might like to give, in this case, sharing information. And then there's an alternative story that we offer, in this case, sharing your backpack of uh, useful skills and resources. And we don't just present these two theories and then claim we're right. We, in each area, go through a number of puzzles with the usual point of view, a number of specific features of our behavior that don't make that much sense from the usual point of view. And then we point out how our alternative account makes much better sense of those puzzles. And that's the key you know, strength of where our argument lies is to say that these alternative explanations, which aren't as noble and high-minded that we might not want to point to as easily, they make better sense of the details of our behavior. Right. So, so in conversation, some of these puzzles that we see are the fact that people are more eager to talk than to listen. Um, you'll often have people jumping over each other to, to get their words in. And if conversation were about sharing info, it seems that we should be more excited about listening than about talking. We also don't keep track of conversational debts. Uh, you could tell me some of the most interesting, amazing, useful things, and I don't feel like I'm in your debt to return the favor. I feel like just hearing and acknowledging that you've told me something interesting is the accounts are already in balance there. And another puzzle is that we don't, uh, when we when we meet people for the first time, I think a podcast might be an exception to this, but usually at a party, uh, we're just interested in kind of letting the conversation meander wherever it will. We don't uh, corner someone and say, please, I'd like to hear the most interesting, useful things that you know. That would that would be, uh, if, if conversation were about exchanging information, we should just go right for the most important stuff. But instead, we're, we're happy to sort of uh, let conversation meander. Um, so th those are the kind of puzzles that that lead us to uh, looking for another motive in conversation. You guys also lay out the complex web of norms and expectations and and rules that we have around these different social situations and how there's this union between those and the relatively large size of our brains compared to many other animals. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is on the topic of bragging, because there are skills and, and emotional intelligence that plays into how you effectively communicate your abilities, communicate your value without crossing this somewhat unclear line into bragging, which can be a real turnoff. So if I'm starting to tell a story, you get, you know, uh, when I was uh, at dinner with the president or, or something like that, and it just kind of slips in there, it still is that signaling effect without, if you're doing it tactfully, crossing that line into bragging. Uh, but that is a, just one of the multitude of ways that emotional intelligence and, and our relatively larger brain is so important and has been forced to develop as we've evolved as social creatures. Yeah, that's a great example there because um, bragging is it's one of those norms that we all know we're not supposed to stand on our soapbox and talk about how great we are. We're supposed to talk about other people or uh, how we can all be better together. But it is a little bit, uh, it's full of gray areas and tricky boundary cases where we're always kind of wondering, like, if I do this, would that be bragging? Should I interpret this other person's behavior as bragging? And it's the existence of all of these edge cases that make the possibility of of cheating and skirting these norms and violating them in, in the most clever and subtle ways so that 
no one can accuse us of bragging. And so this is where our, our big brains come in and and the way that our brains are architected so that we can do these things without even really worrying about them. It just sort of feels right to maybe mention who was at dinner with you. Oh, it was the president. And if you can mention it in the most offhand, casual way, our, our brains just sort of do this effortlessly. Um, and we know instinctively where the line is. Uh, what, you know, if we talked about how we got invited and all the amazing things that the president was saying about us, uh, that that might be too far. But just slipping it in casually, uh, that that gets the job done. And so um, we have a lot of these these uh, subtle norms that uh, are that give us all that gray area to play in um, to our own advantage. And this is a great place to emphasize the core thesis we're saying. So we're not just saying that you're wrong a lot about your motivations. We're saying that you're wrong for a reason, a consistent reason. And that reason is that the motivations you typically have aren't motivations that you want to call attention to because they're at least at risk of violating common norms, norms that humans have had for a long time. So one of those norms is against bragging. And a lot of the things we're doing are to show off and showing off is in a way of bragging. So that's a reason why we are just not aware of our show off motives through a lot of behaviors. When talking, we don't think that we're trying to show off while we're talking, we think that we're sharing information. But the thesis of the book is we're wrong consistently for the reason that we'd rather attribute our behavior to motives that are safer from being accused of violating norms. Another one that I, I really was excited to unpack with you guys is the this, the role in medicine in self-deception. And, you know, a lot of people think about healthcare and medicine as fixing ailments or structures that are broken, it, it, almost like in a, the sense of uh, being physical. But there really is a ritualistic component to showing up at the doctor and getting treated and having someone care about what's going on with you. And I'm, I'm sure that the audience is going to be familiar with the placebo effect, but you really take it deeper uh, with the role of self-deception in medicine. Right. Now, this is going to be the chapter in the book that readers are probably going to be most surprised by and most uh, unwilling to believe until they see the evidence that we bring to bear. So if you've just heard that they're saying medicine isn't about health, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of crazy. And just to be clear, what we're saying is that when we use medicine or go to the doctor or push medicine on other people, in our mind, uh, we're, mo we're most willing to say is that it's about health. We're trying to get ourselves or other people healthier. And we're claiming that that's true some of the time. It wouldn't work as an excuse if it wasn't true sometimes, but it's true a lot less than we like to think. And medicine is a lot more than we like to think about what we've called conspicuous caring or kissing a kid's boo-boo. So if you had a kid and they scraped their knee and they were crying and you came over and kissed the knee, they might stop crying and appreciate it and feel better, even though we all know there's no medical effect there, but there's a huge social effect of feeling better if somebody else shows that they care about you and takes care of you a bit. And our claim is that's true about medicine overall a lot more than we like to think. Right. So it's hard to measure these things. I think Robin has done some uh, detailed economic calculations and, and estimated that uh, we maybe spend 50% more on, on medicine than we ought to spend, given just the healing motive. If, if the only thing that was happening when we bought medicine for ourselves or for others, if the only thing that was happening was that we were getting healed and not this 
uh, social transaction, then we would consume maybe 33 or 50% less medicine overall. And so the, the real puzzle is why do these advanced countries spend an exorbitant amount on medical care and healthcare? Um, there are uh, lots of problems on the cost side on providing medicine at, at a relatively cheap cost, but there's also problems on the demand side where we have other reasons for buying medicine other than just getting healthy. And so um, it's really an economic argument about why do we see so much investment and interest in buying medicine for ourselves and others? And again, the structure here is there's a usual story, there's the alternative story, and the real way we can tell the difference is through lots of details. Uh, just at the highest level, just the overall claims aren't going to be very strong. So uh, some of the details that are striking, there's almost no actual correlation on average between health and medicine. People getting more medicine are just not on average healthier. That's true for nations. It's true for geographic regions. It's been shown in our randomized experiments. Uh, another datum is that people seem remarkably uninterested in other things besides medicine that seem to have very large correlations and, and effects on health, which include air quality, sleep, social status, uh, religion, exercise, uh, a lot of big things uh, that seem to matter a lot, lot more. And then people also seem to be surprisingly uninterested in information about the quality of medicine. They seem to be obsessed with medicine that's uh, expensive and technical. Uh, how much people consume in medicine depends a lot about how other people who live near them consume on medicine. Uh, these are some of the specific features of medicine that we are attributing to this alternative theory and saying it explains them a lot better than the usual theory. Yeah, I think this is going to pair really, really well with a, a recent episode we did, 255, with Dan Monroe, where he, he really talks more about the supply side, but this demand side. And, and really, what, what we're talking about here is self-awareness, and that is part of this paradigm of understanding what's actually motivating you and what you're doing. And I'm curious to maybe take this to a personal level for both of you in the process of writing this book, of covering so many areas where we humans tend to deceive ourselves. If you can talk to either how it has affected your personal choices or, or maybe just get into the weeds a little bit further in the, the choices of your own conspicuous behavior, because I think, I don't remember who said it early on, but it's it's the type of thing that a lot of us want to just look at and then ignore and and, and leave alone. Um, how do you engage with this content as you were putting the book together? Well, honestly, I'd say the simplest and straightforward way to engage this, which is what I recommend, is just to focus this on a theory of other people. <laughs> Explain the rest of the world around you, not yourself or even your friends. Ask what explains other people going to school, having medicine, art, talking, things like that. Just look at the data about the world. Uh, try to find the best explanation for the typical behavior. And then as the very last step, just assume you're like everybody else. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a good way to sort of jujitsu yourself into uh, understanding some of this. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great question, Aaron. I, I, I've struggled quite a bit um, with this material and, and applying it to my personal life. Um, I think the, the biggest takeaway is uh, at the risk of tooting my own horn here, I think it's made me a little bit of a better person um, in that it has made me more willing to question myself and my own motives. And uh, uh, I really do turn this inward a lot and, and try to find the ways uh, to dissect my own behavior uh, to see if I'm really 
doing things for the reasons that I want to be doing them. And uh, that's not to say that I have become a, a perfect saint here, not by any stretch. But so there is a little bit of a, a game that I play with myself about as I'm acting in a way that I know I've written about in the book. Oh, there's some hidden selfishness here. Uh, I, I really you have to try hard not to think about that selfishness. So there's a little bit of a schizophrenia there. But um, one of the things I, I keep coming back to is all of the selfishness that we, we discuss in this book is it's in the context of pro-social behavior. So we're looking at conversation where we're sharing information or medicine, where we're helping people heal from, from disease and illness and injury and, and uh, you know charity and art, all of these pro-social behaviors. And we're looking at the other motives that exist alongside the pro-social motive. So it, it helps me to remember that even if I have selfish reasons for giving to charity, the, the act of giving to charity is still itself a great for, for the world and for me. And I, I contrast the, my own behavior here and, and the behavior of all of my friends and family and, and everyone I know and love. We're all enacting this pro-social strategy. And of course, there's a hidden selfish side to it, but there's also a, a, a strategy of like the sociopath or psychopath uh, who is much more directly exploitative. It's not about using charity to to look better. It's about actually finding ways to extract resources from other people or from an organization. And so I think as long as we all focus on behaving pro-socially, the motives don't really matter as much. I like to focus more on behavior and the consequences of that behavior. Um, that's how I sleep at night, I guess. Yeah, I, I just think it's one of those things that if you don't take the right mindset to this type of material, it can push you down a pathway of, of really being cynical or jaded. And I think that that framing of a healthy manifestation of these selfish interests is a more effective way to deal with the material. I think there's a danger of when you're folk wondering how selfish you are getting really self-absorbed in the question. Most likely evolution gave us this blind spot because it thought it was in our personal interest to be blind. Uh, when we're just naively assuming uh, the best about ourselves, uh, that lets us more easily convince others of that and more naturally sort of get along with other people. And so there is a degree to which we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting you in becoming aware of these things. The biggest payoff in becoming aware is if you're trying to actually think about other people and do other things for them. So if you are involved in policy and thinking about how to reform different institutions we have as education or medicine or elsewhere, if you were just starting right out at the beginning, making an incorrect assumption about what the whole thing is for, your whole analysis is just going to go wrong. So if you really want a chance at being able to coming up with a reform or, or a proposal for changing one of these things that makes sense in terms of what's actually going on, you need to face what's actually going on. And so I think the biggest payoff here comes from not introspecting and asking yourself deep questions about yourself, it comes from thinking about the rest of the world and what you could do for them. I want to throw a curveball at you guys before we wrap up and ask our last two questions. Um, you, you talked about reforming institutions and the sector where you see perhaps the quickest turnover, the most experimentation is the business world, it moves a little bit faster than government institutions and other arenas. And one 
trend. I, I wouldn't even call it anything more than that because it, I, I've yet to see anywhere where it's particularly successful, but is this notion of getting rid of hierarchies within organizations. And um, one of the, the points that you make in the book is that removing the situations for political action actually has like a, a negative effect on our evolution and on our growth as understanding uh, each other politically. But the classic example, or maybe perhaps most well-known example, is Zappos trying to get rid of hierarchies. And they saw this sharp increase in employee turnover and, and kind of backtracked from that strategy. Um, w- when you see a someone thinking about that or or putting forward that notion given your study of these these topics and of these selfish motivations that are driving so many actions how do you interpret that how do you, do you see that in any way shape or form potentially being successful uh well i'm particularly uh happy that other people are are doing these experiments i think they deserve to be tried and i would would not be particularly cynical about um, their, their chances for success. Um, but to the extent that maybe Zappos is having trouble with their um, completely flat hierarchy, uh, I would wonder if the, the ways that humans assort into hierarchies, that is a natural pattern that repeats itself whenever you get enough people together at scale. And uh, if there's a rule that says no one is to be above anyone else, then there will be a lot of jockeying and subtle gray area gamesmanship uh, to to get the benefits of being hierarchically above someone else without actually um, failing at the letter of the law. And so um, you might end up in a lot of these suboptimal uh, power struggles without the actual um, fixed endorsed hierarchy that, that a normal company would would produce. One of our chapters is on body language. And in that chapter, we talk about how we're usually not very aware of our body language, but one of the things that body language does is it creates relative status rankings that when two even close friends are talking to each other, even very comfortably, they actually use their body language to negotiate a relative status where typically one of them is higher status than the other. They would usually deny this if asked and you know, perhaps vociferously uh, argue against the idea that they have agreed on one of them being higher status. But if you actually look at the body language, it's pretty clear. Uh, this illustrates how we humans have often strong norms promoting egalitarian treatment, how we're supposed to be treating each other equally, even when we actually have status and hierarchy slightly behind the scenes. So I think this plays out in ordinary organizations all the time. Yes, one of the very strong common human norms has long been Uh, that in a group of people who are close, that they should all be treated as equals, at least on the surface. And in fact, we don't treat them that way. And similarly in organizations. So no doubt one of the things many people are unhappy with in modern organizations is that we are open and explicit about having hierarchy in a way that violates many ancient human norms. And we'd love to find a way to make that violation go away so it could feel like it's more doing it right. But the hard problem is that egalitarian treatment, um, could work in a group of you know 20 to 50 people, roughly, that our human forager ancestors were and the limited set of topics they dealt with. And in modern, big, complicated organizations, it's really hard to imagine big, complicating things getting done without some degree of hierarchy. But that's not something people really want to face. Yeah, it, it's, it's a big problem. It is definitely requiring more conversation and thought. And I think that, you know, one of the oft-quoted 
ways to distill this is any year you don't destroy one of your best loved ideas is probably a wasted year by Charlie Munger. If people want to get their year off to a, a fast start in breaking down some of the ideas that they may hold dear, I think that they should check out the book Elephant in the Brain by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. Uh, guys, if people want to connect, if they want to buy the book, uh, what digital coordinates can we point them towards to learn more? Well, I think the book is available uh, wherever books are sold, especially in digital formats, uh, Amazon, Google Books. You can find me on the web, uh, uh, mostly on Twitter. I'm Kevin Simler. Uh, it's K-E-V-I-N-S-I-M-L-E-R. And uh, my blog is Melting Asphalt, www.meltingasphalt.com. And I'm also on tw Twitter as Robin Hansen. I have a blog called Overcoming Bias. I have web pages called at hansen.gmu.edu. And our book has a web page elephantinthebrain.com all or you know no spaces well we'll be sure to link that in the show notes it'll be easy for everyone to get the uh the links for the book and for every previous episode of the show as well at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast uh, but gentlemen as we do at the end of each episode of going deep i like to give my guests the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience um well uh let me issue my challenge here to your readers, Aaron. Um, I think I would encourage everyone to uh, look inward and try to be more intellectually honest. Um, it is, uh, it's, this is a lifelong journey and uh, it's not always easy, um, but the, the fruits are there. And I think the, the biggest fruit of, of this quest to, for intellectual honesty is uh, making yourself a better person to be around, um, especially in, in conversation, in arguments and debates in this polarized political climate. Uh, if you can step back from your own convictions and wonder if you might be wrong about something, um, that there's just so much value there. Uh, you know, as, as Feynman says, I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but, uh, you know, you must not fool yourself, but you are the easiest person to fool. Uh, I think if you take that to heart, you can, um, you can really, uh, see things more clearly and be a better person. I suggest you give humanity a break. Um, now, humans are the sort of creatures who like to describe themselves as angels. And what you'll find out is that they're not. They're not the sort of angels they would like to be or pretend to be. And I suppose you have a right to be disappointed by that. But look, look at what humans actually are compared to every other species on the planet, they are remarkable. And even just looking at how selfish they are, people are remarkably cooperative. Humans have cooperated across history and on increasing scales, and we are doing remarkable things through our enormous and detailed, elaborate cooperation. We are amazing creatures, lovable, <laughs> and uh, the sort that you can be proud of knowing and being one, even if we aren't the angels we pretend. I love it. And I think that it's really important to play in these spaces that make you uncomfortable, um, not only in that pursuit of being more intellectually honest, but like you're saying, Robin, it, having some empathy. We're, we're all out here trying to do our best and uh, understanding those motivations and empathizing with them is the first step towards further community and cooperation. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. We just went deep with Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit subscribe if you've not already done so. And check out my event, Going Deep Summit, at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash event. We are approaching our max capacity on tickets sold so you're going to want to get yours asap we have an amazing lineup of speakers that you can go and check out also some videos with those speakers talking about what they're going to be discussing and the big ideas that you are going to get to wrap your head around on january 27th along with some free food from chula the indian barbecue is going to be one hell of a day i put a ton of work into this and you need to get yourself there see you then And I'll see you at the next episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.